Welcome to Learning with Lowell. I'm your host, Lowell Thompson. We cover biotech and science-related topics on the show, such as startups working on antibiotic drugs or colon cancer, to venture capitalists talking about funding and how that worked, to people talking about how they found a science-backed startup. Two, and this is one of my favorite parts, people talking about specific science-related topics, such as whales or protein engineering. You're really going to get a lot, and it's all going to be about science on this podcast. Today, we're joined with Dr. Andrew Martin, a specialist in antibodies and mutations, an expert witness, antibody consultant, person who works at the WHO as a consultant. You name it, this person pretty much does it when it comes to the antibodies. We're going to get into his work, a great deal about antibodies and their form and function and what's unique and beautiful about them. At the end, we get into a little bit of his work on IP and and patent law. Basically, lots of really interesting things. Before we jump into the episode, I just wanted to do something real quick to say thank you to someone who left a really kind review. R-R-E-K-A-J said that the episode is super interesting with five stars, saying that we ask great questions and bring unique perspective and insights to the field drawn in history and literature. And I just wanted to say I really appreciate that review, and I thank you for taking the time, and I hope that you're doing well out there. But let's get into this and start listening to this podcast about antibody. Is there anything beautiful about antibodies that seems to take your breath away? That's an interesting question. I mean, obviously, the structure is beautiful. The structure of every protein is is beautiful, really. But I guess it's the ability of antibodies to bind to virtually anything. So for one particular antibody molecule to have such a high specificity and high affinity, that is the fundamental concept that, that allows antibodies to function in the body, in the immune response, but also is what makes them such potentially powerful drugs. It's a really interesting thing. Like our our immune systems are are incredibly powerful and advanced. And like that's something I think is kind of beautiful in that we're like walking around. We have Normandy beaches inside of us keeping invaders away and doing like these really intricate, crazy things. And like most people aren't even aware of them and they're just doing their job. Absolutely. And if, if they're doing their job properly, then you shouldn't be aware of them. That, that, that That's what they're designed to do. I have to say, I'm not an immunologist. So the, the natural role of antibodies is less my expertise than being able to use antibodies for other things. But, but nonetheless, obviously, I, because I work with antibodies, because I teach about antibodies, I have to understand the, the basics of what goes on. But yes, you're, you're absolutely right that we have this ability to produce billions and billions of different antibodies, each of which has exceptionally high specificity and affinity for a particular molecule, usually from a bacterium or a virus. And of course, sometimes it does go wrong. And sometimes we start to produce antibodies against our own proteins. And and that's what leads to autoimmune diseases. But obviously, you know, this, this, this ability to see such a huge range of invading organisms and the proteins or, or carbohydrates that they expose on their surfaces and be able to produce a specific response to those things which allows them to be eliminated from the body without us knowing what's going on is, is really what antibodies are about. You, you appreciate it when <laughs> you miss it, when something gets through and you're like, oh, you know, I feel crummy, I have to miss work and this antibodies, why don't you work harder? But you know, it's like the 1% that get through. When When we're sick, that's often because... The antibodies are doing their stuff, and but the body hasn't been primed to deal with that uh, invading organism before. So that's why a lot of um, 
a lot of diseases, we will get them once and then not again because the first time we see those invading organisms, it takes the immune system a week or so to start producing those really high affinity, high specificity antibodies that are going to do their stuff and kill off the virus or, or kill off the bacterium. So during that time, we have inflammatory responses and more the, the innate immune system trying to do its best to look after us while the antibody response is, is coming into play. And then, of course, once we've got those antibodies made, we have these memory cells that keep the antibodies ready in case we get exposed again. Is there like a prime memory, like if you were like a robot and you were like, and you had a prime memory memory that made you really focus on antibodies and want to uh, like dedicate your life to it. Is there a memory like that? Is there like a like a series of things that made you hyper focused and, and and really passionate about this? Actually, when I was an undergraduate student, obviously we 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 learned about antibodies then, and I just found the the concept from a structural point of view very very interesting and. One of the questions that were, well, is still to some extent unanswered, although we think we know what's going on now, is how an antibody triggers the rest of the immune system to do its stuff. So, so I like to think of antibodies as adapter plugs, the, the sort of thing that, you know, you can plug a, a UK electrical plug into a, a US socket. But one of these clever ones that allows you to plug EU plugs and Australian plugs and so on all into the, the same socket. So the, the role of the antibody is to act as an interface between that enormous variability of the immune of oh, sorry, the enormous variability of bacteria and viruses and the constancy of our immune system because the antibody alone can be useful but more Commonly, it's triggering things like macrophages to come in and eat up invading cells or triggering the complement system to come in and kill cells. So why doesn't that happen all the time? If there are antibodies floating around, why aren't they always binding to complement or binding to macrophages and, and triggering them and getting them to kill things randomly? So there were two competing hypotheses about how that worked, whether it was some sort of conformational change in the antibody that happened when the antibody bound to an invading organism, or whether it was a concentration effect, that having lots of antibodies close to each other triggers these other things in the immune system. And I think this was the first time for me as an undergraduate learning about antibodies, this was the first time that I was really aware of a real controversy in the type of science that I was interested in because people didn't know what the right answer was. I think up until that stage, you, you know, you kind of taught things in high school and taught things as an undergraduate and you just accept most of them as fact. And this was where I was starting to find out that people didn't know all the answers. So, so I think that was one reason that, that that got me excited about antibodies and that there was more to know. But then my personal tutor as an undergraduate, his area of science was working on antibodies. And so I guess that instilled more of a 
more of an interest in the area to me. And it was around about the time that antibodies were first rec- realizing their potential as as drugs. So antibody-based drugs were first being made around then. So again, that was something that I was interested in, was applying my science and being able to do things that actually make a difference rather than just finding out cool stuff. I'm the same way. I like to I like to learn, but I also like to apply it. Yeah, I like to get my hands dirty, I suppose. Though, you, you like you said, you don't work in a wet lab. So I think you work more with computers, right? With like bioinformatic type stuff? That's right. So I'm a bioinformatician or computational biologist, what you, whatever you like to call it. But a lot of our focus has been on developing tools, developing software that really helps other people to to do their science and to create new drugs and, and so on. Whenever I learn about that, like the little small things inside of us that do like the crazy stuff like the antibodies, being able to be selective and what they attack and what they don't attack, it makes you think like they're like really smart. Like how did, how did like that evolve? You know, like over like millions and millions of years, how does like something like that, that's really small and very like simple in a lot of ways, but yet, yet becomes so complex and then fit within a, a, another complex system and another complex system. And then we have people. Like it's like one of those things that's like, wow, that's really, really smart. And if it wasn't smart, it would be really, really bad because you'd have <laughs> autoimmune disorders and stuff. But uh, do you ever like just sit and talk with like fellow, like you have like a group of friends who understand like or fellow antibody people and just think like, wow, that's really crazy. Yeah, I guess so. You know, you just you do sit around and you, you talk about these things from a kind of vague conceptual point of view about how these things come ar- come about. I mean, the the evolution of the antibody system is just so clever you know it it does almost want make you want to use the word design this huge diversity that we have you can't encode that in the genome we'd need our genome is about 3.2 billion base pairs of dna of which only two to three percent codes for proteins we would need far far more dna just to encode antibodies if they were encoded in the, the, the standard way that other proteins are. So this, the way this has evolved is, is to take little DNA segments and then splice them together at the DNA level. So you, you randomly choose what's called a V segment and randomly choose a J seg to make the light chains of antibodies and you have the same sort of mechanism for for the heavy chains of antibodies but you have an extra section so you have a V a D and a J and that allows you through that kind of combinatorial mixing of random segments to generate billions of possible sequences but not only that the way this splicing occurs the bit that gets gets spliced together where the splicing uh, site happens and in the the heavy chains where we have this little d segment all that splicing ends up focusing the variability right in the middle of the binding site where it sticks to things so if if you want to generate something which has that huge variability has that ability to bind to essentially an infinite range of of different uh, molecules that's exactly what you want to be able to do. You want to focus that that variability right in the center. And the the fact that all this has evolved through 
through natural selection is, is really quite produces quite exquisite tuning of the system. But then also, of course, as as you you started out by saying, we also have the problem of how do you produce these high affinity, high specificity antibodies without also binding to all our own proteins and and killing all our own cells. And again, this this mechanism has evolved whereby essentially we delete the antibodies that bind to our own proteins. So so that that helps us avoid that problem. And then we also have the additional regulatory system that involves uh, expression of fragments of, of of proteins that we're going to bind an antibody to. And those those short fragments, short peptides, get displayed on a protein called MHC, and that then inter- interacts with another type of cell called a T cell. And you need all these things to be happening in order to produce this antibody response. It makes me think of, I was just slowly assembling like an orchestra, like all these people are the clar- like the clarinets and these people are like the violins and they all come together to like like do the process it's i don't know, it's, i like, i will just kind of sit here and talk about how uh, fascinating it is if i keep doing that but um <laughs> there's an isaac asimov quote i wanted to ask if if you've ever experienced this the 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 quote goes the most exciting phrase to hear in science the one that heralds new discoveries is not eureka but that's funny so i was wondering have you ever had that experience where you know you're you're working on something and, and you get results back and you think, well, that's funny. And then you dig deeper and you find something there that you didn't think it was going to be there. In general, computational science is a little bit different from your kind of eureka or that's funny science, at least the, the, the sorts of things that I do. So I'm, I'm sure there are examples like that, but at quite a small and subtle level. I think, I think what we... What we tend to see is more frustration that we can't necessarily find a way of solving a problem rather than seeing things that we really didn't expect. So, so for example, one of, one of the challenges that we have with antibodies is trying to predict what their three-dimensional structure will look like. Now, the overall shape of, of an antibody is very highly conserved. It has a, a Y shape consisting of these two long, heavy chains, which go up from the, the tips of the Y to the bottom of the Y, and two shorter chains, which interact with the, the, the arms of the Y. Overall, they're quite straightforward to, to say what they're going to look like, and they all look pretty much the same. And most of the antibody structure is conserved, except for the tips of the, the Y arms. So when we're trying to predict the structure of antibodies, we're really just focusing on those, and in particular, focusing on six loops of protein. So three come from the heavy chain, three come from the light chain. And these come, these six loops all come together to form the binding sites that an antigen interacts with. In general, predicting the structure of five of those six is, is quite straightforward, but predicting the six is really very difficult. And that comes back to this idea of how the diversity is generated and how this splicing happens, because this region is exactly where this little D segment of the DNA is spliced in to encode this this region of the protein. And so predicting the conformation of this loop 
is really, really hard. We've, we've tried to do it by scanning databases of other loops and a, uh, colleague of mine who's interested in antibodies as well, they found that antibody loops in general look rather different from loops in other proteins. So trying to borrow information from other proteins, which is what we normally do when we're trying to model protein structures, actually is quite hard. So that's quite surprising because why would antibodies follow slightly different rules from other proteins? So we've been recently looking at using machine learning methods like neural networks to try to predict antibody loops. And this was something that I looked at nearly 20 years ago now with a very small data set. And we had some some moderate success. So now we thought with a much, much larger data set, we'd be able to do rather better. But it's it's still a very, very hard problem. And it's it's quite frustrating that we can't, at the moment, solve this problem. And, and nobody else can. There are lots of other people trying to work on it, and they're not really doing very much better. So um, I think the answer to your question, from my perspective, is more about frustration that it's not easy to move forward. And despite having over a thousand structures of antibodies and tens of thousands of structures of loops that potentially could fit onto antibodies that we can use to try to make predictions uh, and to help us with our, our machine learning. There still really is not enough data for us to make significant progress. I think I've heard a, a science friend of mine describe the DNA and these chemical aspects of our of our immune system as a computer code. When you're looking at these things, because you, you kind of know how to do the computational stuff, does it ever feel kind of like computer code to some extent? The way that DNA acts as a long-term storage medium and is then transcribed into RNA, which acts as a short-term storage medium and transport medium, and then that's translated into a protein product. Well, that is essentially some sort of computer cipher, the fact that we're using three DNA bases to encode one protein amino acid is a, is a simple cipher. That has a relation to computer code. And in fact, people working at the European Bioinformatics Institute in Cambridge have actually exploited that. And they have encoded graphical data, so images, JPEG files, in DNA. So they have explored the possibility of using DNA as a normal data storage medium. So they they designed a kind of error correcting system, designed a DNA sequence, got this piece of DNA synthesized for them, turned up in a, a little vial with a bit of uh, white powder at the bottom. They then sequenced that. And from that, they were able to recreate their image of, of the building that they worked in. And they did that some years ago. And they're now at the stage with this sort of technology that they believe that within the next five to 10 years, there will be a commercial data storage product based on DNA. So yes, the analogy with at least computer storage is very, very strong and potentially exploitable. With computer code, that sort of area, there is an analogy, but it's not as, you know, it's not as easily describable. I, I mean, we use computer models to capture sequence patterns. For example, not in the area of antibodies so much, but in transcribing 
DNA into RNA, we have these transcription factor binding sites. So patterns in the DNA to which a protein binds to switch on the transcription of, of, of a gene. Now, those patterns obviously are encoding information. They're acting as recognition sites. And so we can use um, computational models to try to encode that information. It, it's kind of a two-way street that a DNA pattern interacting with a protein is able to encode some piece of information acting as a switch in the same way that we're able to encode that information and look for those patterns in a computer program. So yes, there are certainly uh, certainly ways of thinking of, of biology in, in terms of, of, of a computing problem. And also, also, of course, in the kind of area of systems biology, people are trying to simulate in a computer what is going on in a cell or an organ. And there's this um, eHeart project trying to simulate what's going on in a heart so that people can um, computationally test the effects of drugs and effects of electrical stimuli, that sort of thing, on different parts of the heart. So the very fact that we can simulate these things in a computer suggests that there is effectively some computation going on in the thing that we're trying to simulate. You, you mentioned previously that you didn't have a large enough data set, right? How, yeah. how big of a data set do you need? It's it's always very difficult to tell. We you know we we have got a lot of data. We've got hundreds of thousands of loops that we can train machine learning methods with for for solving this particular problem. And those hundreds of thousands of loops have come from hundreds of thousands of of protein structures that are available. The rate at which we're accumulating protein structure data it's doubling approximately every about every five years now i think it's slowed down a little bit from its peak but there are still a lot of technical difficulties with crystallography as a way of, of solving structures one has to produce fairly large amounts of very pure protein one then has to persuade that protein to crystallize and then there's the uh, the, the data collection and uh, data processing part of it which which these days is 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 a smaller part of the problem than just generating the, uh, the the crystals in the first place. But, you know, there are structural genomics projects that are just trying to solve thousands of structures, and in some cases, without knowing what the protein actually does. More and more data like that are needed and, and will help us with these sorts of problems. But we're already into uh, the sort of area that people describe as, as big data, and the machine learning technologies that we use really just need as much data as possible it's hard to give a to give an actual number we just need to keep trying with the ideas with more data until we find that we're we're actually able to make predictions at the moment with this particular system that i was talking about we're able to memorize quite well if you train one of these systems with information about these the sequences the amino acid sequences of these loops and the structures of loops the system can remember the information so if you if you try testing again with a loop that you trained on in general it can do a very good job of of recalling that information but it hasn't yet got to the stage where it's able to generalize and we just need more and more data to be able to do that how does the machine learning aspect come into it is that is that something that 
you develop as the computational scientist or do you have like someone who specializes in AI stuff partnering with you to build it? There are standard pieces of software for for doing this sort of thing these days. Uh, there's a freely available program called Weka, which um, essentially once you've just got the data that you're interested in, in an appropriate format, you just feed it into the program and the program learns from those data. There are also more complicated systems that we've been exploiting in this uh, trendy area known as deep learning. The problem with problem with deep learning is while it's potentially able to uh, learn information that the, the simpler systems cannot, it also needs much, much more data to train on. So, so that's really where we've we've become a bit stuck at the moment in terms of data. But most of these programs are available off the shelf. In some cases, you need to write a little bit of code to make them to customize them to to exactly what you're you're trying to do. In in general, they're packages that have been developed by the machine learning experts, uh, and we're then able to exploit those. I think you got your PhD at Oxford, and over in the United States, kind of Oxford has like this mythological feel to it that is like like a really like fantastic place. And so I was just wondering, is it because I think you've taught at a number of places, and I imagine you've been to even more places than that. And so I'm just curious is is Oxford qualitatively different than other places in a way that like is more than just like the grounds and the people? Like, is there something like really special at Oxford? I think you have to generalize at least as far as Cambridge as well. I think the way that the way that teaching is done in Oxford and Cambridge is is very different. So because of the the college system there, essentially all of your day-to-day teaching and all of the the work that you're set, all the essays you have to write, all that sort of thing, all that is done on a college basis. When I was at Oxford, I I was at um, a college called Christchurch which people these days mostly seem to recognize from Harry Potter because it was used, parts of it were used in, in the filming of Harry Potter, the, uh, the Great Hall where they have four, four long tables for dinner was actually based on the, the hall that I used to eat dinner in every evening when I was an undergraduate. They actually had to rebuild it because uh, the arrangement in our hall was three long tables and they couldn't fit a fourth in, so they had to kind of reconstruct it as a set. But, but the, the, the look was, was very, very similar. So obviously the, um, the environment is unique. Oxford and Cambridge having these, these very, very old buildings. Christchurch, where I was, was founded by Wolsey and, and sort of taken over by Henry VIII. So, so that obviously is a, is a unique aspect of it. But as I said, with the teaching, that was largely college-led. So in my college, Christchurch, in my year, there were just three people doing biochemistry. And that was a fairly typical number for each college. So I think there were about, about 65, 70 of us altogether across the university. Some colleges would only have one person studying biochemistry. That meant that all the kind of week-to-week teaching was done by your tutor at your college. I mean, he, he might arrange for you to have tutorials with other people, but it was all coordinated by your personal tutor. And that very intensive teaching where essentially 
all of your work was done in a kind of group of three people, maybe up to five people for some subjects. You know, you were discussing your essays, you were getting very immediate, very direct feedback. I think that that really is the unique thing from the, the teaching perspective. Of course, we had lectures at a university-wide level as well, and also lab-based practicals and so on. That wasn't the day-to-day work that you're having to sit in the library and and do work for. And I'm not sure whether it's still the case now, but when I was there, the three streams of teaching, the lectures, the practicals, and the uh, work for tutorials, were completely separate. So you might learn something in a tutorial that you then covered in lectures, you know, a year later, or vice versa. So they were very disparate. I think that has changed now that they they try to coordinate these things a little bit more, which is probably a good thing because at least when I was there, in general, the lectures were not that valuable because you wouldn't cover the, the information in enough detail to be able to answer an exam question on it. All that came from your your tutorial work. It's very interesting place to be. The atmosphere is is quite amazing. Obviously, the buildings are beautiful. But I think actually, when you're an undergraduate there, you really don't appreciate it. So I was there in, in total for seven years because I was an undergraduate there on a four-year course, and then I did my PhD, or as, as they call them in Oxford, a DPhil uh, for a further three years. You just become used to it, and it's only now when when I go back again. I think what an amazing place this was to be. That sounds nice. My college campus, I I have a bachelor's degree. My college campus seems to like to have shootings. It like so like I'd rather go to (laughs) I'd rather go to yours. It sounds much more magical. Mine, uh, yeah, we get like I still am on their newsletter, and they're just like off, and they always specify this like off-campus shooting, and it's like I bet it was between students though. Like I know exactly where that is. (laughs) It's a bit (laughs) disturbing. Yeah. 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 It's not the nicest, but I, I survived and I walked around at night too. So, I, you know, I don't know, maybe people just don't attack me besides a coyote one time, but that is a story for another time. But um, <laughs> I was attacked by a coyote once, though people make fun of me. Right. The, okay. um, all right. So a question I wanted to ask is there's a topic of uh, like on your LinkedIn bio, it said that you help out with antibody, ant- antibody, I don't know why I said it that wrong, antibody uh, humanization and act as an expert wit- witness. And so yep. I wanted to talk about that because I think antibody humanization is where you kind of like take antibodies from other organi- organisms and you kind of like engineer them to fit into humans. If I remember that right. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So there are, there are a number of problems with using antibodies as drugs. So, well, let, let's first of all say what the advantages are. Obviously, this very high affinity, very high specificity that antibodies have means that you hope to be able to get an antibody to bind to something in the way that a normal drug binds to something, but with that very high specificity that hopefully means that you're less likely to have side effects from a drug binding to things that you don't want it to bind to. That's that's one reason that antibodies are, are interesting as drugs, essentially just to stick to things in the way that normal drugs just stick to things. The, the larger binding surface that you have with an antibody drug 
also means that you can potentially bind to molecules that normal drugs can't stick to because a normal drug being a small, generally quite hydrophobic molecule needs to bind into a pocket. And sometimes if you're trying to disrupt something like a protein-protein interaction, trying to stop a hormone binding to a receptor, something like that, there may not be a pocket where a small molecule can bind. So antibodies can, can fill that sort of role. The second thing that antibodies can do, of course, is their natural role of triggering the immune system. So if you can produce an antibody that binds to a cancer cell, then potentially it can trigger the immune system to kill the cancer cell. So, so that's, that's the second thing we can do. Third thing we can do is use an antibody to direct another drug molecule to the right place. So we have these things called antibody drug conjugates, where a typical sort of small molecule drug, generally a toxin of some sort, is attached to an antibody. And when it gets to usually the site of a tumor, um, either it gets uh, uh, taken up by a cell, uh, broken down, and the toxin is released, or um, tumors tend to be a slightly more acidic environment, and the linker that's used between the drug and the antibody can be designed such that it uh, breaks down in that slightly more acidic environment, releasing the drug specifically at the site of a tumour. So that's the third mechanism. Fourth mechanism, which there aren't any actual drugs on the market that exploit this yet, but it's something that a lot of companies are working on, is producing bispecific antibodies where you have two separate binding affinities, allowing you to bring perhaps a cell of the immune system to a specific site. So another way of, of triggering the immune system to kill things or in other ways, bringing molecules or cells together for some therapeutic purpose. So the majority of those things that I've talked about actually require you to bind an antibody to a human protein. There are a few antibody-based drugs where we're interested in binding to viruses or to bacteria or to bacterial toxins, but I would say 90% at least of the antibody drugs that are on the market do not do that. They bind to human proteins. So given this ability of the human immune system to recognize self, and therefore not to produce antibodies against our own proteins, that means that we can't trivially produce human antibodies against a particular protein of interest. The second problem producing human antibodies is that the, the traditional method of, of uh, producing what we call monoclonal antibodies, so lots and lots of copies of the same antibody, is to take an antibody-producing cell and fuse it with a tumor cell to produce what's called a hybridoma. That immortalizes it, allows it to carry on dividing and producing more and more antibody. And although this seems to work for mouse cells, rat cells, sheep cells, even camels, pretty much every species that people have tried, nobody has ever managed to get it to work with human cells. Um, so, so that's been a, another limitation. Consequently, people started producing antibodies in, say, mouse or rat. But if you take a mouse antibody and you inject it into a human, then the human immune system will recognize that antibody as being a foreign protein. And therefore, it will mount its own 
immune response, including producing its own antibodies against that antibody that you are hoping was going to work as a drug and will rapidly remove it from from the blood. So the first time you give the drug, it, it's likely to work because it takes a week or so for the immune system to develop the antibodies that will then recognize this antibody drug. Second time you give the drug, the immune system is, is primed and ready and will remove the drug very quickly. So back in the 1980s, people came up with the idea of producing a chimeric antibody. Now, if you recall, I said the antibodies have this Y-shaped structure, and the variable bit is up at the ends of arms of the Y, and that's the bit that interacts with antigen. So if you take that bit from your mouse antibody and fuse it with the rest of the structure from a human antibody, and of course, you do, you do this at the DNA level, not at the protein level. You, you produce your DNA, which is part encoding human protein, part encoding mouse protein. That has two advantages. First of all, you've got far less of the protein is from the mouse and therefore is less likely to induce an immune response. But also the kind of trunk of the Y is the bit that interacts with the rest of the immune system. And because that's now human, you've got a better chance of activating the rest of the immune system and, and, and killing cells or, or whatever it is you want to achieve. However, you've still got around about a third of your, your protein is mouse protein. So there's still quite a high chance of producing an immune response. So the next step on from that is this idea of humanization, where we then just focus in on the, these six loops that actually form the binding site. We take those from the mouse and everything else comes from the human. So this was first done in the late 1980s, around about 1988, 89. And when it was initially done, it, it, it seemed to work very well. But then the second paper that came out on doing that in 1989, they found that just kind of grafting these, these loops, which are known as CDRs, complementarity determining regions, grafting these CDR loops from, I think this was actually a rat, a rat antibody, onto a human, the antibody didn't bind very well anymore. They realized that the precise structural orientation in which those loops are supported really governs whether or not the loops are going to bind to the antigen, the, uh, the, the protein that we're binding to, with suitably high affinity. And it's not just the loops themselves that determine those conformations, that, that shape that they have. It's also amino acids in the framework that give very subtle changes to the precise conformation. So essentially what they realized is that if, if you start with a human antibody, you pop foreign CDR loops from an antibody that binds to something of interest, and those have come from a mouse or rat. You pop those onto your human supporting structure, sometimes you're going to have to make a few more changes to amino acids in the, the human part to, to change those to mouse or rat or whatever it is in order to support the loops in precisely the right way. This is, this is something that we've worked on quite a lot and helped companies with and academic groups as well with making the correct changes in order to recover the binding. And you, you've got something of a tension here in that you want to make as few changes as possible 
to keep the the structure and the sequence as human-like as possible. But equally, the more changes you make, the more chance you have of the antibody binding as successfully as the original mouse or rat antibody did. And the more binding you have, the less protein you need to use, and that potentially well, obviously has economic benefits, but, but also potentially having less protein, less foreign protein around may lead to less immune response. It, it all becomes ra- rather complicated. This is something that we've worked on. As I said, we've helped both academic groups and, and commercial companies to do this. But it's also something that is very interesting from an intellectual property point of view. And again, around the the late 1980s, early 1990s, there were quite a large number of patents that came out on deciding which amino acids you need to change. And of course, once you have patents, you also have patent disputes. So... Either these are related contractual things where perhaps one party has has a patent on, on, on doing this sort of thing. Another company is, is licensing that patent, but then not paying royalties because there are slight differences. But then under patent law, there are things, there's a thing called equivalence. So in one case that I was involved in, it boiled down to whether serine and threonine could be considered to be equivalent amino acids. And anybody who knows about their amino acids knows that serine and threonine are probably the two most similar amino acids that can normally substitute for one another quite quite happily. That's kind of one aspect, these sorts of patent disputes. Another aspect related to whether you can try and attack a patent. So you've, you've got a new antibody that you uh, think infringes somebody else's patent are you, if you think it does, then you want to be able to destroy their patent uh, to clear the way to allow you to produce your your product without uh, having to pay them royalties. So I've, I've been involved in those sorts of legal disputes in the antibody world and also in more general bioinformatics type disputes where people are challenging patents over whether they're, whether it's obvious that particular proteins are members of particular protein families, uh, that sort of thing. One of the things you have to avoid in in order to get a, a valid patent is that the thing that you've created must not be obvious. It must be invented in some way. So I've been involved in, in a number of these, these types of disputes. For people who are listening, is there a good way to follow along with what you're working on by any chance? Like, I don't think you have like a newsletter, but if you did, I, I would sign up for it just so I could hear all the stuff uh, you're working on. No, we don't. I mean, obviously, our, our website has has a lot of information about what we do and a lot of general resources for people who are interested in antibodies, a lot of software that you can access online and that you can download. Uh, so that's www.bioinf, that's B-I-O-I-N-F dot org dot uk we i i do have a, a twitter feed but i have to admit i don't use it very often again our our website has a full list of our publications so um, you can download those uh, most of them freely from the website few few you can't but they need a username and password to download them from the website but you can if people are interested they can email me and request that from me and that was dr andrew martin the antibody expert we got into how antibodies work the uniqueness factor of them the stuff that only someone like him would really notice and appreciate. We got into a little bit of his day-to-day work, 
There's also a quick text interview as well that's going to be in the show notes. So if you want to read that, go check it out there. Other than that, I want to inform people before we go that there is a new way to show support for the podcast and to keep it advertisement free from now until forever, which is called Patreon. If you go to Patreon and look for Learning with Lowell, you'll see this podcast. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We can be found on Twitter at Lowell this year, Facebook, and on the website, learningwithlowell.com. Also sign up for the newsletter where you can hear amazing content every Monday, new episodes every Tuesday, and new blog posts around every Thursday. Remember to share and tell your friends. Please and thank you.